Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl and it's episode four of Cage Rage and Nicolas Cage podcast. See, I left a dramatic pause there um, where most podcasters have a have a cool intro theme, but I I don't have one. I just have an echoey room and a window where I can look at cats on verandas. That's exciting. Uh, as we speak, as we're recording this, I'm looking at two cats on the veranda having a stare-off. One of them just licking his paw. The other one, absolutely overwhelmed by how unintimidating that he is. So that's what's going on in my day. How are you? You good? You well? Keeping safe? Still in the in these strange, unprecedented corona times. Isn't it unprecedented how many times you've heard the word unprecedented? Anyone else, while this is going on, you just wake up and think, again? <laughs> again? More of this? Nothing has meaning. Time has stopped as we know it. The only thing that makes sense, the only constant, certainly in my life and maybe some of yours, is that Nicolas Cage keeps putting out films. And that's what gets me up. That's what continues to get me up now. Episode 4 is here. We're recording. We're doing this. It's happening. Well into the swing of things. This week, we've experienced The Cotton Club. It's an American crime drama film. Centred on a 1930s Harlem jazz club of the same name. That name is the Cotton Club. Uh, Going through a number of pivotal moments in American history, namely the Great Depression. We're looking at the club through the context of race relations in the 1930s. Uh, Quite an interesting film to look into the behind the scenes of, truth be told. There was uh, a lot of trials and tribulations that went into this. I read that it took five years to make this film. It went over budget. It had to get... This one was actually made me laugh out loud. Even with its budget, it had to get bankrolled by Las Vegas casino owners, which even though there are gangsters in the film, that just takes... This context of the gangsters in the film takes a whole new meaning. And even if you thought that wasn't enough, it was also financially backed by an Arab arms dealer to make this. So if you want the power of Cage on board, you better bring the finest Arabian arms you can, because that's the only way he's signing your contracts. To be honest, with this film going over budget, and let's be honest, any film starring Nicolas Nicolas Cage should go over budget. Although that being said, the fact it has a budget to begin with is a little bit insulting because Nicolas Cage is a priceless gem, a cornerstone of our world. He's one of the four elements, earth, wind, fire, cage. Without the four, this world will crumble even further into turmoil. You don't see him going on with the coronavirus. He's got too many Netflix films to make, and I'm here for all of them. Now, this film, interestingly, it's the fourth in the Nicolas Cage line, the fourth on our journey to true Nicolas Cage for Nirvana, lest we forget. 
this one had good critical reception, mostly positive. Actually got nominated for a number of Golden Globes, including Best Picture, Best Director, although Cage was cruelly snubbed. And that is why, and I'll say it until he gets the recognition he deserves now, Hollywood is full of shit. Behind the scenes as well was a nightmare. Daily production costs were said to have cost around a quarter of a million dollars a day, 250,000 Benjamins. There were 600 people building the sets, 30 to 40 scripts written and rewritten again and again during production. Uh, this film had a hard time, hard time coming together, so thank God that Nicolas Cage was the one constant throughout all of it. Now, ultimately, despite the good critical reception, the film was a flop at the box office. It made only £25.9 after the overall budget was around, some say 58, some say 65, so made less than half. Um, but with what money it did make, I hope most of that money was paid to Nicolas Cage. When you've got five years of this nonsense, it must have been a very stressful time for the world's greatest actor. Now, importantly as well, as I alluded to in the end of last week's episode, I've brought a drink with me. Because I found if you try to talk for an hour in podcast form, it tends to take its toll on the old throat. Now, don't worry, I'm going to edit out the slurps. Unless you want me to keep the slurps in, let me know in comments if that's the kind of content that you're looking for, since we ASMR slurps. We'll have a quick one now. Mm -mm -mm. Orange cordial. You better believe I pushed an old woman to the ground in my local supermarket to get that. Good two-hour film here. Uh, enjoyable film overall. I, um, when I first went into this, I saw that he was a supporting actor. Now, I thought, we're going to get a bit of Rumblefish scenario here. Is he not going to be in it that much? Now, let me tell you, no spoilers yet. Very meaty. Meat, potatoes, two veg, and Nicolas Cage on my plate. Smother that in gravy. Mm-mm-mm. Lots to work with, lots to talk about. Very exciting. So, let's get into the business. Now, with the opening credits, we've got the big bands are playing, the big jazzy bands you think of, um, the sort of jazzy sound I think nowadays of the, uh, the wind and the horns of New Orleans. We've got all that blowing off in the background. We've got the dancing girls in all their choreographed wonder. The credits... Interestingly enough, said cornet solos by Richard Gere. Richard Gere, the leading actor in this, and he'd learn his own bloody cornet. Five years, that's what that will get you, some bloody cornet practice. I could have learned an instrument. Could have finally committed to learning a guitar, or, you know, a wee, a wee pied piper's flute. But no, I thought I'll... I'll start a podcast in an already oversaturated market. That's what I'm going to do with my life. Don't get paid for it. Is it on Spotify? Yes, it is. I had to get my one dick swinging reference in there. But, you know, it's it, the listeners, all four of them, are more enough, more than enough for me to keep on going and keep on keeping on, keep on caging. That's what we're going to keep doing here. So, just rest assured, get ready. For some piping hot cornet, you shit. Oh, it's coming at you, and it is steaming. Now, we've got the choreographed ladies. Uh, they're moving in circles. One girl in the middle is doing a windmill with her arms. Uh, the classic 30s dance move, the windmill. 
this was before the drunk dad was invented. You had the uh, razzmatazz ladies windmilling. You know, you whack some keys between the fingers, you've got an absolute unbeatable fighting technique there as well. Now the film starts, Harlem, 1928, the Banville Club. Richard Gere is cornetting here like you've never seen. You think you heard toots? You've never seen a toot like this. Sweet, hot, buttery toots. They turned me inside out, folded me like a goddamn accordion. What a rush. What a thrill, honestly. If you imagine Nemesis at Alton Towers, you imagine that ride was a cornet toot. You understand? You understand what I'm saying here? You with me? Because now you're on the right track. You're up, you're up, you're up. Whoosh toot, down to, up to, finish to. And then you get a picture on the end to celebrate. What a great sound it was. Richard Gere, a.k.a. Dixie. Uh, he's dressed like how Johnny Depp dresses all the time now. Um, but not not so much like that weird aftershave advert that he was in. You know the one where he's driving through the desert? It's like, I'm looking for something. I don't know what it is. It could be anything. Is it my wife? Mm, probably too soon. And then he digs something up and then he, the advert doesn't really make any sense. And he's got that waistcoat on and all those beads. It's basically like that, but not as mysterious and less sand all about it. Now, Gear, old Dixie McGee, he's tooting in front of Dutch Shots, played by James Ramar. You may know him um, as Ajax from The Warriors. Remember The Warriors? That was a good film, wasn't it? And Dexter's dad from Dexter. Uh, he is the local gangland kinkpin. Because there's crime on the line all the time in Harlem. Now we've got two local goons. They turn up. The dressed as police. It's like the bloody Hitman games. And they throw an absolute stick of dynamite at them. Light it with a cigar. Because how else are you going to light it? And then they throw it. Attempt to make uh, an attempt on Dutch's life. Bit of a laugh, innit? What you get up to in the 30s. That's your own business in the late 20s. Now Dixie, still piping hot, still on the level, still in tune with the Earth's rotation on X-axis, pushes Dutch down, saves him, and Dutch says to him, you know what, young lad, Uncle Dutch, your Dutch uncle, which I'm sure is a sex move now, is it something to do with poo? I'm not going to Google that, but you can, you can DM me. He says that the Dutch uncle is a favourite. So Dixie, a bit later, he takes the girl who is with Dutch home, he tucks her in, and he sleeps separately from her. Because he's a gentleman. You have to know that if this was a cage scenario, I'm not saying he'd go through with it, I'm not trying to imply that that's the kind of man he is, but draw-dogging would have been on his mind. Now, ten minutes, seven seconds in, we have our first cage sighting. Yes, there he is. That's what we come for, and that's what we stay for the rest of the film for. Nick Cage plays Vincent Dwyer. He's based on the real-life Irish-American Bob Hitman, Mad Dog Cole. Of course he is. Was there any other character so fitting of Nicolas Cage's talents? Mad Dog Cole? 
very close to Mad Dog Cage, if you ask me. Um, no, I, I looked up Mad Dog Cole as well. A lot of the characters on these are based on real people who were around at the Cotton Club at the time of the film. Now, in real life, Mad Dog, old Mad Dog Cole, gained notoriety for the alleged accidental killing of a young child during a mob kidnap attempt. What we would call today as a truly mad lad, insert DJ Airhorns and dabbing here. There's no one else who could have played this role. As soon as I said Mad Dog, you thought, yeah, of course Nicolas Cage is playing Mad Dog. And it's perfect casting, because, and I don't want to go on about this, only four films in, you can't miscast this man. He gets it right every time. He is the perfect actor for any role, no matter how big or large, but the larger the better, because that's what he deserves. Now, when we meet Vincent, Dixie's recounting the previous night's events to him. Vincent pays for his coffee. What a nice guy. Child killer, allegedly, but a nice guy all the same. He'll listen to your stories. He'll pay for your coffee. And then that's the kind of, that's the kind of hitman that you want on side. And I think we can all agree on that. Now, a side story that we have here is the story of the Williams brothers. Delbert and Clayton Williams, Delbert Sandman Williams, and his brother Clayton Clay Williams, played by real-life brothers Gregory and Maurice Hines, respectively, as we follow their trials and tribulations over the years as they audition to become performers at the Cotton Club. Now, a bit more context on the Cotton Club as well. It was a very prestigious club for black performers to format, singing, dancing, uh, playing instruments, entertaining, and it was exclusively for white patrons to watch the black performers. And at the time the film begins in 28, black patrons were not allowed to come in and view the entertainments as it was. Um, I've watched that was the time. That was the time it was. But it's a, a very big thing, a very big honour for black performers to be able to uh, entertain there and do their thing. Now they the brothers, the Williams brothers, are tap dancers. They tap a tap a tap a. They tip tap top and toe. Their feet move to any old beat you want to put down. And this is where the dream lies. So, whilst they're on the way there, Vincent just casually brings up that he got married to Patsy. They go to Dixie's house. There they speak with Dixie's mother, Tish. I think she's a dance instructor. She used to dance. It's not explicitly explained, but there is a child in there who's dancing with her before the child is sent on its way. I don't know. She might be dancing for money. Maybe she just invites children in to teach them how to dance because that's how you survived in 1928. If I tried to dance now on my sleek hands that I call legs, I'd be laughed out of the building, I'd pull my back out, I'd get a, a groin injury, and I'd be ripped apart by dogs. I don't know where the dogs came into it, but you go on any talent show these days, there's a dancing dog. And Simon Cowell fucking loves dancing dogs. I hope one day one of the one of the dogs just just loses it and just attacks the crowd and they have to um Simon Cowell has to wrestle it with his bare hands. That's the kind of pandemic talent I'm looking for. You know, talent where you can survive 
So, Sandman goes back in, after the audition, finds out they passed the audition, they're going to be on the next show. Well done to the Williams brothers, well done to Sandman and Clay. You did it, you tapped, you tapped for your life, you lip-synced for your life, and you didn't fuck it up. Mama Brood proud. Now, even though earlier in the film, Dutch Uncle has told Dixie that he owes Dixie a favour, he's turned it around a little bit because that's what these gangland mob bosses do. Dutch requests Dixie's presence at a little shindig to play music for a hundred and fifty dollars. You know, in that time, nothing to be sniffed at. Nowadays, it's not quite enough to buy your mate out of the gulag, if you catch my drift. And if you don't get that, it's probably for the best, because you've not been up till two in the morning trying to win an ultimately meaningless game. Because some of us have nothing else to do. Don't look at what Gulag is because it's probably more depressing on an actual search than hearing it from your boyfriend that ignores you on the PS4. So the best part of this party is that Cage is at the party as well. Ain't no party like a Cage Club party. Hey ho, mother effers. He said he's Dixie's brother. That's how he's got in. And let's be honest, what smarts, what cunning... What a cunning young man. Let him into all the parties. If you see Nicolas Cage, you're having a party, and he's not invited, he's across the road, he's out for bits. He's out for a bit of celery, he's out for some cereal. He's out for a Highland Spring water. You let him into your party, and you let him at the hors d'oeuvres. You let him have access to the Spotify playlist. Because all he's going to play is X is going to give it to you on repeat a hundred times. And he's going to smash it, and you were going to be thankful that Nicolas Cage came. You know, like in the way that Bill Murray just turns up and pours tequila for people at parties? Let's do that, but with Nicolas Cage. But the only twist is that someone will get quite ill and have diarrhoea the next day. Was it because of Cage? That's the mystery. That's the one thing that links all these situations together. But we'll never really know. And I don't want to know. I don't want to know. If I get diarrhoea... I'll know it's because Cage was at the party, and I had a good time. Now, Dutch is explaining that he wants a balance of the Irish, he wants a balance of the Jews, which is quite considerate of him to hire a diverse range of people, so good for you, Dutch. One of Dutch's guys gives Cage money to buy a Dutch-approved suit. you got to be tip-top for the big man. And Nicholas Cage could have said to him, Listen, here's my cock and balls. And then that would have been the end of the sentence, and Dutch would have said, you know what, fair play. I like the cut of your jib. I like the cut of your cock and bolts. You were part of the gag. But he didn't because he's, he's kind, he's respectful. He'll play by your rules, for now, and then he'll sleep with your wife. Now Vera Cicero, played by Diane Lane, she is going to be the main love interest of Dixie. She is... For the moment, associated with Dutch, but she's not married to him. Dutch's wife is married to him. She is, as explained later, a bit on the side because Dutch likes to look at her. Not nice. We don't like it now. That's not the way we act. Again, it's the bloody 30s where the hog truly ruled the roost. That's in the history books, folks. 
Now she rocks up. She's looking like Cleopatra from outer space. She's the girl that Dixie escorted home earlier after the dynamite attack a few minutes ago. Do you remember that? She says that she's there for Dutch, but she wants the Dixie. If you know what I'm saying, I think you know what I mean. A few rooms away. Array. Array. Away. In a manger. No crib for a cage. The little Lord Nicholas screamed in the face of the Lord. A few rooms away, Oni Madden, played by good old hand Bob Hoskins, oversees a truce between Dutch and Joe Flynn, played by John P. Ryan, before offering them some of the best, and I quote, food and pussy in the area. The best food and pussy in the area. Because in 1930s Harlem, they were quite the delicacy. If you were having a party, and you weren't offering food and pussy, then what the fuck were you doing? You can have food, you can have pussy, sure. But if you haven't got them both, no. (laughs) Not interested, I'm not coming to your party. Jesus. So, before you know it, Dutch gets heated, and out of nowhere, uh, just stabs Joe Flynn right in the top of the chest, murders him at a buffet of all places, just guts him, blood goes everywhere, it somehow gets on a chandelier. I'm not a blood spatter expert, I don't think it would go that high. Puts him right through a table, you'd think this was a bloody WWE hardcore match. That table crunches down. Quite frankly, if there's one thing that grinds my gears, and again, let me know if you agree with me on this, it's when someone gets murdered at a buffet. Do you know what I mean? Just take a minute to think about that. How are you supposed to eat sausage rolls and chicken drumsticks when there's a corpse on the table? There's a corpse on the table, and you can't get to your nibbles. It's bad etiquette. It's terrible dinner manners. And I'll be putting my paper plate back and getting an orange juice and cereal from the shit bit of the buffet. No one wants the cereal, but it's there. Gotta share all that semi-skinned milk with that stranger next to you. He's probably called Steve. And that's all on you because you stabbed a man and put him through a table, Dutch. Your bag of shite. Dixie, of course, clearly distressed at the lack of buffet. He takes Dutch home, and then he takes Vera back as well. He won't go in to Vera's apartment, though, because she's Dutch's property, not his. You remember that? When he could buy a woman from the shops? He could just go to the shops and say, I'll, I'll have a woman, please, shopkeep. And then feminism killed the men. It's political correctness gone mad, I tell you. Not even 30 minutes in. Right, and let me stress this. Not even 30 minutes into this film. And there's been a murder. There's been a buffet. And there's been Nicolas Cage. I don't think I need to say any more. But when I was watching this, I had to check the clock and think... Christ, we're only 25% of the way through this film. I need a fucking rest. But I did nary nary a rest did befall my weary head. I cracked on for you folks. 
and the Williams brothers arrive for their first Cotton Club show. Dixie brings Vincent, Patsy, and his mother to the Cotton Club. Unfortunately, Cage does say the N-word. It's not the first time. It's not the last time he'll say it in this film. Uh, You may argue, I don't even think the N-word was in the script, and Cage just went off script and he went method. It's a period piece. you got to accept it. You've got to accept Cage's acting range to say that word with full commitment. You know what? He gets a pass for... I don't think I'm allowed to give people passes. I'm white. I'm white as snow. I don't... I think it's just dangerous territory, me giving white men passes on saying the N-word. That's not... That's not good. That's not good at all. The showgirls perform again. Uh, a real razzmatazz tappy number. Tish goes over to Oni. Says she used to work for him, dance for him once upon a time. Oni, should have referenced earlier, he is the owner, fittingly enough, good name, of the Cotton Club. Big business, big wig. Uh, now, Oni absolutely does not remember who this mad old bat is. He's busy drawing a horse on a napkin. Uh, no idea why. Not a particularly good drawing. He seems to have a minor thing for horses. Never explained. I could have looked into it. I don't want to. I don't know how much work you actually think I put into these podcasts, but I'm not looking at whether a man had a horse fetish or not. That's not for me to do. I'll give you the ingredients. I'll give you some of the instructions. You figure out the rest and you get back to me. This is a two-way system, goddammit. Tish. She's a, a firm, confident, supportive mother. She tries to get Dixie a job with Oni, playing music at the Cotton Club. But Oni, he knows that Dixie already works for Dutch. However, he does consider getting Dixie on board because hot damn that boy can toot. Sandman from the back, he watches a dance routine. He's eyeing up a young lady. There's a singer at the same time, who sounds like an alarm clock, with but with more rhythm. Um, one of her lyrics was... Honestly, you've got, you might think, and I'm not expecting you to watch all these films. You can watch the films. You know, I put them on the social medias, what we're watching. You can watch them, get ahead of time. And then these references and sounds that I come out with, they're going to make a lot more sense, honestly, you know. I do it for you. Don't think this is me being mentally ill. Because my therapist already thinks that. So Dutch arrives. Oni summons him. Oni's looking at another horse. You can't see the face but I'm pulling. But it's like those, you know, arms wide, come on, kind of faces. Oni asks Dutch for restitution for doing the murder of Joe Flynn. And he says he can either pay me... 40 grand over the next few months, or 25 grand now, in cash, because they didn't have debit cards back then. Imagine that. But Dutch pays him $25,000 American, because that is the price of murder. $25,000 is the price of a broken buffet table. Next up, we have the Brothers William performing the Tapa 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 duet. Uh, genuinely, really great choreography here. It was quite entertaining to watch, I have to say. Uh, 
I love the dancing in this and the uh, the choreography, the performance, the theatricality of it all was um, a lot of fun to watch. It's all very colourful, very lively. You kind of feel like you were there, minus the fact that I was watching this in a t-shirt and underwear and not in a tuxedo, as would have been the want and need attire of the day. Uh, they crash it. Excellent legwork all round. Uh, well done to the Williams brothers' legs. Good legs, good tapping. Um, no faults from me. No, no criticism, no feedback. I think he did very well. Now, Dutch employed Dixie to be Vera's, essentially her PA, for $300 a week now. And he says, I want you to drive around. I want you to show her a good time. And all in all, everyone's had a good night. Nicolas Cage has had a good night. He's got a nice thick jacket on. He's warm. He's sensible. And then everybody goes home. So, good so far. We've had some tapping. We've had some murder. We've learned some 30s math about table and buffets. Next up, sometime later, Dirty Dutch and the boys are talking plans. Dirty Dutch and the boys are talking plans and discussing fixing horse races. Dixie supplies them with those spreadable butter toots. Honestly, you could slice that on bread and it wouldn't rip into pieces. The number of times I've tried to acquiesce my spreading knife with butter that says it was spreadable, and now there's holes in my bread. And I look like a chump because my ham's falling through the holes. How am I supposed to make myself a packed lunch like a big boy with my holy sandwich? But this, this cornet work, it's raw dog in music. Vera asks him for a drink, but for no reason at all, he just spills it on her. I have no idea why he did that, he just <laughs> he just threw it at her. Um, the only thing I can surmise is that she tried to interrupt him in the middle of a cornet solo, and you just don't do that, okay? You just don't interrupt someone's spicy, creamy tits. Now, Dutch calls him out on this, puts him on laundry duty. I think he got off quite light, if you ask me. Vincent quickly stops by to deliver Dutch some numbers. I assume it's about horse racing. I'll be honest, I missed the context. Uh, but for the three seconds that Cage was on screen, I wasn't complaining. It was a great three seconds. Sandman, he takes Lila, played by Lynette McKee, out for lunch. But he doesn't have lunch on the mind. Oh, no, sir. And do you want to know what the Sandman has on mind? And it's not giving people a dream, like the song by the, the ladies of the time era, of that time era suggested. Um, he wants some of that sweet, holy matrimony. These two have known each other for maybe two days, if I'm being generous, three. And he wants to marry her. Okay, so why have food when you can take someone else's last name? Just think about it. You can have a full belly and someone's wealth when they die. I think that's how marriage works. I don't know. Then he takes her to a club, which is usually for black gentlemen, and he asks one of the patrons to marry them. Is he a pastor? Is he just an old black man? I don't know. We're not told. But instead of them getting married, um, for some reason, 
everyone instead commits to a dance number. Because apparently this is High School Musical. Every, literally everyone takes turns tap dancing. It, um, and I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'll have a go as well. Why not? I don't even have tap shoes. I just put my laptop to the side and I kick the floor like it owed me money. I span around a bit. But from now on, you can call me Double D Dangerous Delicious Dynamite Diamond Boy Daryl Edge. Or D-Train. Choo-choo, it's the D-Train pulling into the station. Sometimes the train's early, sometimes it's late. On rare occasions it's been known to never arrive at all, like into that as you wish. But no marriage happened, there was no Nick Cage, so I have to put this down as a terrible scene. Now Dixie, he was supposed to take Dutch out, he takes Vera out instead. He tells her that she moves him in strange places because he is, of course, in man language, talking about his knob. They go to a restaurant. They talk about what they know about each other, which is the little bit here, a little bit there. Dixie tells Vera he knows what she looks like when she makes love. A bold gambit. But, again, in that time period, if you didn't immediately talk to a lady about her vagina, what were you doing? You've got five minutes to get the conversation to a lady's vagine, otherwise you're getting a cab for yourself, ye oldie fool. So just remember that when you swipe in on Tinder. Hey, my name's this. Hi, my name's that. How are you? Not bad. Yourself? Yeah, not bad. How's your puss? And that's how you do it, people. Now they start dancing because they're being watched by one of Dutchie's goons, Sol, this very stone-faced golem of a man. They get a bit annoyed that they're being followed everywhere, so Dixie pulls Vera onto the dance floor. Um, they talk about his dance background. He was 18, working in the tea rooms. The ladies paid him for the private dances, if you know what I'm saying, and that's why he's so good at the rhythm with his hip nodes. Uh, and then for some reason, they both slap each other. Um... Again, I don't really know why that happens. I think they just didn't like each other's tone. They slapped each other in the face. Forcibly continue dancing. Um, and everyone around them applauded. I, everyone around... They were beating the shit out of each other. Everyone around them applauded. Um, and then everyone else who was dancing then pretends to slap each other and dance as well because they thought they were launching some kind of new craze. I'm in a fucking fever dream right now. That was just pure violence. Under the guise of tap dancing. And they all lapped it up. I don't... You know, this is a fine film so far. But there are certain things. I don't have a fucking clue what's going on. But it doesn't matter because Dixie takes Vera back to his apartment. They kiss. Vera pushes them away. Then they do a smooch again. You know, because uh, what Dutch know, knows and what he doesn't know, more importantly, won't hurt him. Wink, wink. Dixie wants Vera to leave Dutch. She's not so quick to agree. There is the assumption they might have raw-dogged here. We don't see it, but who knows. But for the consistency of this podcast, let's just say that they did. It's more entertaining that way. The following day... 
back at the Cotton Club, Oni tells Dixie he heard the late great actress Gloria Swanson complimenting his looks, and because of that, after such a high accolade, he wants him to be his face on the coast. And says, don't worry about Dutch. I'll take care of that son of a gun, that SOB. You go off and do some acting for me. It was that simple. If you had a face that says, this guy knows how to fuck, you got put in the pictures. Sandman, behind the scenes, he's given the go-ahead for a solo dance. His brother walks in. Clay doesn't like this. He doesn't like it one bit. And he tells him, you know what? You got your solo on stage and off. Oof. Brotherly tensions at an hour in. Nick Cage is back. He's got a bitching big old 1930s hat on. Very big. You probably could keep... Um, Trying to think about a size equivalent, like a potato in there. Maybe a small sparrow, if that takes your fancy. Half a potato and a sparrow and a bush. Now, tragically, Nick Cage has been shot in some gangland turf warfares. Not so tragically, he does say the N-word about four more times. Um, He's been fighting, and now he's got a bullet hole in his arm. We don't have to like his methods, but my god... Oh, we love his madness. And that's what we're here for. Dixie, after this, tells Dutch he did a screen test and it's looking like he's going to play a gangster in the movie Mob Boss. It's a little bit on the nose, but what can you do? Dutch doesn't approve of it. Over in Hollywood, they don't particularly think that he can act. But, but as we said earlier, He's got a face that says this man eats ass, and they want him in their pictures. It was as simple as that. Typical, typical Hollywood. Typecasting. Stereotyping. And that's why they can go fuck themselves. After this, we get Vincent in some hot action here. Vincent shoots up a joint with a tummy gun. It's totes 30s, very 30s and I'm all here to finally see Cage chairing some shit up it's moments like this that make you think yeah, oh yeah this is why you got all those action roles later on in your career, 90s when you had those guns and he said those lines in those films this is what set the pace for you my friend this is what set the pace for you to become the greatest actor of a generation following this we get a little montage of gang wars, dollar dollar bills, accompanied with the jazzing and the singing, so you can tell it's a time-lapse, a.k.a. the time-lapse is... Nicolas Cage has been very busy killing people, so... You know, we could have lost the time-lapse, could have had more scenes of him shooting people, I would have been all there for that. Sandman, he wants to talk with Lila on the roof of the Cotton Club, but the nasty fat man manager, Mike, he doesn't like it. He's a little bit racist. He grabs Sandman, he drags him into the kitchen, threatens him with a cleaver, chops the lettuce in half in one fell swoop to send a message. Because that's how you did it. You took a bowl of vegetable and he cut it in twain. And he says to him, let's have less of that. Sandman 
Not liking the cut of this bugger's jib, he goes to Bumpy Roads, played by... It's bloody Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne. Because he's saying to him, you know what, I want Mike dead. I want him gone. I want him out of here. But Fishburne, Rhodes, calms him down. He says, look, I'm a pimp. I'm a thief. I'm a gangster. This is what I've been given. This is my lot in life. What I have to keep on doing is keep on being black and keep on doing my own thing. Whilst the white man has left him, the underworld, that's where he dances. He can't dance with his legs, he has to dance in a different way. And he says to him, where do you dance, Sandman? Where do you dance? And Sandman says, I'll kill him with my tap shoes. Lovely scene, great scene from Fishburne. A lot of intensity, but with a, a lot of cool, a lot of screen presence. Very enjoyed seeing him do his thing here. And now we get two more skips in time we get a little bit of 1929 it's the great depression times people i looked that up on the internet so you know it's a fact stocks are falling money's down everything's going bad but if you think that's a bitch you should see the amount that the nook boys are offering me for my turnips and animal crossing you talk talk about a great depression <laughs> am i right animal crossing people yep ed yep Cool. 1930s, Vera has now got her own club. Dixie is a movie boy now. He's one of their mob bosses in the films and the moving pictures. Vera's invited him to the club. Dutch doesn't care for it. Classic Dutch. You know who else is there? I'll give you two guesses. You got it in one. Nick Cage. Of course it's him. And he wants to talk to Dutch. He wants to go straight to the big man. And he looks him in the eye. He's like, look, Dutch McGinty, you shitbag. I've been doing all these gangstery things for you. And I want what's mine, some of that sweet, delicious gangster money. You're going to give me my fair share, sunshine. Now he offers him a poultry, $100 a week, but Cage rightfully so, tells him to shove it up his ass. Good for you, Cage. You're worth at least 1,000 gangster dollars. And as this happens, Vera sings, Dixie toots, Dutch does a grumpy face. Next, Sam and Lila get a hotel room. They've both got their shoes on in bed, which is a thumbs down from me. Zero respect for linen. However, a raw dogging no doubt occurs. So you... You earned some points back, Sandman and Leela. You earned some points back. And now Vincent, epic scene, he's in the rain. He buys an apple from some urchins. Um, the urchins are then almost immediately gunned down as Cage's boys open fire and salt. Dutchie's creepy golem man from earlier is watching Dixie and Vera dance. Uh, hilarious, all in all. Uh, a lot of murder. But Nicholas Cage got an apple, one of his five a day. So, you know, it is what it is. The papers put out a reward for the capture of Baby Killer Cage. How dare you? He wasn't there. He didn't do it. He was just eating an apple. The apple business is a tough gig. Ask Steve Jobs. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. It won't protect you from Nick Cage and a Tommy gun. You knew what you were getting into, you sons of bitches. 
Unlucky, and now you're dead. Moving on. Oni tells Dixie that Cage has become a pain in the ass for everybody. Oni, I thought you were one of the good people, you horse fucker. You can go fuck yourselves as well. The media, the club owners, they're all in this together. Corrupt pieces of shit. Get out of here with your Cage trashing. I won't stand for it. He's the greatest actor of a generation. You show him some respect, you motherfucking pieces of shit. <sighs> Sorry, I know it's just a film, but... I don't like it when they talk bad about my boy. Now, Kay just snatched Frenchie. Frenchie is a, a right-hand man of Oni. Cage has demanded 50 grand. He's a bowler. But you know what? You know what's more than that? 50 grand? That's the price of two buffet tables. He knows the price of money, goddammit. Other people learning the value of things. Clay and the Sandman. Throughout these time skips, they've been estranged, but they reconcile through the sweet medium of tap dance. Because it is the only way to fix any broken relationship, you know? Sing the song when a highbrow meets a lowbrow. It's a lovely number, emotional scene. They tap and they hug. Tap is the key here. And they're back together again. The Williams brothers are back, doing what they do best. Now, finally, some recompense here. Vincent gets his money. He laughs with glee. Vincent does tell Dixie. Now, Dixie's been asked to be the middleman on this and try and negotiate the hostage situation. Vincent tells Dixie he wasn't in the car when the kids were shot. He wasn't. I've got the video footage. I can prove it. Dixie says, Vincent, you're trying to be this town's Al Capone, but Vincent likes that. He's a tough guy now. You always were, Cage. You still are. However, Dixie asks him to take the rap. He's like, look, you've got to calm down. Just take the rap. This is only going to get worse for you. But he's like, nah, mate. I just got 50 Gs. And I should also point out, Nick Cage's chest hair game really stepped up since Valley Girl. Before then, it was like a shuriken. And now it's just a luscious mane. And I'm here for it. Vincent releases Frenchie. Dixie says to Cage, Look, man, you've got to get out of here as quickly as you can. Now, Frenchie goes back to Oni. He tells him that nothing happened. He tells him he wasn't hurt. They have a little bit of a back and forth about his ransom. Frenchie was told that he was only worth $500. Oni says that's not true. Vincent actually wanted 35, but because I didn't want them to hurt you, because I value you, you're my friend, I gave them 50k, an extra 15 on top. That's bros for you. He pays you an extra half a buffet table. You can get dips on that. And that's what bros do. Now I need to pause here. Because this is when the film became difficult. Difficult to watch. Difficult to continue, because it's my great displeasure to announce a one hour, 34 minutes, and 35 seconds, Nick Cage was gunned to death. Gunned down like the apple child. I feel, I feel sick talking about it now. I didn't want to carry on watching this film, there's only about half an hour left. And this is, historically, the first cage death committed to film. 
Um, he screamed for quite a long time here. He really sold that death. If, if anything, he oversold the death. And fair play to him, man. He must have taken a good 50 bullets here and kept on yelling. The hit was organised by Oni, who's draw, drawing another fucking horse. This is one of the worst moments of my life. I wanted to... I didn't feel it was enough to just tell you that Vincent got gunned down. Uh, now, I can't show you because you're listening to this, but you can listen to the recorded scream. I'm going to give it the same now. A uh, potential headphone warning. I don't know how loudly this is going to come across, so here it is. Did you hear that? Did you hear the pain? Did you hear the... One more. I'm rightly the same sound when I try to pass bowel movements, and it's having a really tough time. Um, honestly, awful. Awful. He fell, and the glass smashed, and his wife was there, and um, really difficult. Really difficult to carry on. Now, thankfully, the film gave us a little breather as we go to 1931, the final year of the Cotton Club, uh, in this film at least. There's a man singing Zabu Zabu and Heidi Highs. He's got a white suit on. He's got a lot of energy. I can only assume he's possessed by the spirit of Cage. Dixie is now a big star. The mob boss film has blown up. It's gone everywhere. He's signing autographs. Sandman, now a lead feature at the Cotton Club, is tap dancing with the showgirls. And importantly, the Cotton Club is now just not only for white patrons, now everyone's going in there. Uh, the white folks, the black folks, they're all having a good time. And it's a lot better, we can all agree on that. Everyone's tapping there. Oni, however, is meeting with a new player in town, Charles Lucky Luciano an Italian mafiosi, and he wants Dutch out of the picture. Forget about it! Bumpy goes backstage. He talks with Benona, but he's accosted by manager Mike. Fucking Mike. However, Bumpy's men, they overpower him. They take him to the toilets. And they put his head down the toilets. And they give it a little flush. And suddenly... The passing of Nick Cage becomes a lot easier. And now we can think about that and smile as this man's getting his head flushed down the toilet. Right? Right? And Lucky meets with some other Italian mafiosis. Uh, you know, whack him with the spaghetti, put him in the meatball soup. You know the lingo. You know the lingo for killing people. Dutch's wife comes in. She confronts Dutch. She doesn't like Vera. She tries to fight Vera. Dixie takes Vera away. They go between some silk curtains. It's all romantic and shit. I, why silk curtains? Hey, I wasn't there. It's not for me to judge. They do a little smoochy kiss business. Vera's leg lifts up like... Ladies' legs in kissing scenes only ever do in 
movies, either that or I've been not kissing women right. Answers on a postcard. And Dixie tells Vera that he can save her. But Vera says, how is she supposed to get away from Dutch when Dutch is everywhere? A bit later on, Dixie joins the Cotton Club band on stage. We get some now A-lister, celeb-style, buttery content. Not like those Gwyneth Paltrow vagina-scented candles, but something real useful. You can smear this on your body, feel younger in ten minutes. You can spread it on toast. I will spread it on toast. It's guaranteed to help you pass those bowels in style. You won't be screaming like Cage. While this is going on, Vera boldly tells Dutch she and Dixie were doing the tongue tango for two. Dixie and Dutch exchange words. Vera stands up to Dutch. Dutch goes to leave with a man who I'm 95% certain was Detective Poirot. But then he turns a gun on Dixie. But then the Sandman... Excuse me. Then the Sandman karate kicks the gun out of his hand. It flies out the window in front of a doorman who has the single best... I don't care and don't get paid enough for this facial reaction to a gun falling in front of you that I have ever seen. Give this man an Oscar, please. With this going on, Dutch and his goons are forced out of the club. Not even attempted murder is going to stop the Sandman from tapping quicker than a human can type letters. At the same time, Luciano makes a call. A little spaghetti in the sauce, if you know what I'm saying here. Sandman's taps play. As Dutch plots his next steps to kill some people. Luciano only another's pop a bottle of red. And they toast to a good business business. At Dutch's hangout, his men are shot. And he's shot whilst he's taking a piss. His boys are gunned to smithereens, or to the sound of tap dance, which we can now establish is truly the music of the damned. Whilst all of his men were getting gunned down as well, I would also say there was a joint of beef on one guy's plate, which remained completely unharmed and honestly some of the best acting I've ever seen. And with that, Sandman finishes his tap number. Only tells Lucky he'll be briefly going back to jail for a minor parole violation, Probably something about sucking a horse cock, because he's a little devil. Dixie asks Vera to leave Harlem with him. Maybe they'll have a drink. Maybe they'll have some sex. Sometimes you just gotta ride the wave and see what happens. They kiss, and they part ways. Then we get a big dance number to round off proceedings here. Everyone's having a great time. Oni goes to the slammer, but he's still arranging the business stuffs. What a guy. Dixie... He goes to board the train, he's got a life to live in Hollywood, more films to make. But bloody Vera's waiting for him, isn't she? They tongue a bit more, and then they toast to a happy ending. As the dance number concludes, the train departs. But it's not a happy ending, is it? Because Nick Cage was gunned down like a fucking prick. Unbelievable. I'm still, I'm still thinking about this. Unbelievable. That's that's a happy ending to you people, to your fucking harlots. I'm going to play it a bit quicker and see what it sounds like. Still haunting. Still haunting. 
So, may that sound haunt you the way it haunted me. That brings us to the end of the Cotton Club. Uh, all in all, I actually quite enjoy this. It was a good film. I'd say probably worthy of some of the nods that it got in the awards. The Golden Globes of 1984. The Big Band soundtrack was nominated for a Big Band Grammy in 1986 as well. Music on point, choreography on point. Uh, Richard Gere was great. James Romain was very loathsome as Dutch. Good cast all around. It's a good film. This is a one of those cage films where I'd probably say, you know what? It's worth checking out. Probably stream it rather than buy it, I'd say. For me as a film, I would say 7.5 to 8 out of 10. It was pretty good as a Nicolas Cage film. Obviously, this gets 10 out of 10. Why would it get any less? Um, I would probably still give this a bronze cage award out of a possible silver and gold. We had a lot of good cage moments here. Still very magnetic screen presence. I still know the best is yet to come. We've got a lot of gold to get through. Some great stuff still to come in the 90s. We're not even looking at the peak of Cage's career yet. We're still at the bottom of the mountain, looking at Mount Cagemore. And we're going to climb it together. Strap your oxygen masks on and your best climbing equipment. Have you got your cleat sharpened? Because you're going to need a good foothold to grip where we're going. Because where we're going, we don't need no roads. That was a film that Nicolas Cage wasn't in. But it was good, it was fun, I enjoyed it. We got a Nick Cage death which I didn't quite enjoy, but overall, not bad. Not bad. A lot of gangsters, a lot of murder, a lot of other shits as well. So as ever, thank you for listening. If you have been, it's always lovely to have you on board. Please continue to... Keep engaged with the show on other media channels. Instagram is at CageRagePod. Twitter, Cage underscore podcast. That's we, where we update first, what the next films are going to be, the thumbnails. I get to see them there before anyone else. If you're listening on YouTube, please consider giving the video a like. Comment down below. Subscribe to the channel if you feel so inclined and share it around with anyone that you think might enjoy it as well. Remember as well that the episode will always go up earlier on Acast and Spotify, so it's worth following on there to get this a little bit early, and it'll be followed the next day by the show in a more visual format on YouTube. Again, the best of both worlds. It's all very nice. It's all very good. And together, we're going to swing our dicks and shake it. <laughs> I should really think of a much more concise ending an outro to this, shouldn't I? Um, but again, thank you for listening. If you have been, that's been episode four of Cage Rage, a Nicolas Cage podcast. Until next time, keep on, keep on caging, and we'll see you in episode five. Bye-bye! Bye-bye! <laughs>